0: You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ely. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome along to another episode of The Vet Chat. I'm Matt Wells. My guest today is Emma Cuttance. Hello, Emma. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. How are you?
0: Good, good. It's great to have you along. I know you're super busy. I mean, you're always busy. Crikey, you've got four small children and you're racing around trying to run a research unit and do all kinds of crazy things. So we're very Grateful to have your time. To be fair, you're actually even busier than you usually are at the moment, aren't you? So, we know you, and I'm sure the audience knows you as being the head researcher. I think that's the right term, I suppose, the leader of the VetEnt research group. But there's a few changes afoot on that too, aren't there? So, do you want to fill us in on what's what's happening on that front?
1: Yeah, so our research team, um, which has been growing steadily, has shifted away from VetEnt now and developed our own business called EpiVets. It's all the same people myself, Winston, and Greg. Still the same technicians, but yeah, with a, with a few other investors as well. So it uh, just gives us a chance to sort of own our own ship and be, what's the word? Switzerland. What's, what's that when you're sort of fairly neutral. impartial? Yeah, neutral. Yeah, just to yeah. um and, and try and keep expanding what we're doing for the good of the industry is yeah really, really relatable, important, you know, pharma-centric, client-centric stuff.
0: Right. Okay. So you're the Roger Federer of the research world. <laughs> It's good. You're actually, so you're right in the middle of it as we speak. So as I say, we're very lucky to have your time. Really, the reason for getting you along to talk today is that we had a bit of a chat about some cool things that you're, that you're up to at the moment. It was quite interesting. We, we sort of, I went away and thought a bit about it, and we, we've sort of discussed it a bit. And there's an interesting thing happening in the research world at the moment, isn't there? That historically, research has been very much, well, Dollar driven, I suppose you would say, and, and productivity driven. So it's about how do I get more milk? How do I grow things faster? How do we improve efficiency? All that kind of stuff has been what research is about. And, and for good reason, you know, people are paying money so they get a return on the money, I suppose, was, was what the point was. There's this thing that's almost sort of subtly crept up on us in the last few years that I hadn't really noticed or thought about until you told me a bit about some of these studies and and it's that actually there's a move away from that well not not totally away from it but there's a new type of research that's probably emerged which is actually more consumer driven stuff and it's about actually the welfare I suppose or the the happiness and and it's reassuring our consumers that that our cows are happy that our animals are happy so and I guess you're sort of at the forefront of that to some extent aren't you
1: yeah so and I think it's such an important point so I think the consumer Cares more about where their food is coming from. That has been something that's been documented and published, and consequently, there has been the shift, sort of slowly, I guess, away. Just like you've said, so production is still important. It's very important, especially when you are trying to, I guess, sell something to a farmer. Production is still very important. The dollars and cents matter, but in terms of the broader research, that has become, I think, less of a focus, and it's a lot more about the animal. Is the animal having a good life? Are we looking after the animal's needs? And I think that's just a move away from there are various types, I guess, or labels to how people think of animals. You know, I I see an animal as it's providing value to me. And that's that. Whereas I think now the way people are moving is seeing, yes, they're providing a value, but I want them to have a good life as well. So, so yeah, OK, I'm still going to eat them and, and have their milk, but I need to know that they are considered as sentient beings. And so I think when we're developing a lot of research now, the animal welfare argument in terms of what this is for the industry is actually at the forefront of when we are trying to sell bids, you know, to, to to get funding as opposed to the production. The production is really now secondary. That's happening with a lot of spaces as well. You know, the Dairy and Zeds and the Frontiers. there's a whole move towards animal welfare science so we can maintain our market.
0: It's interesting. I mean, at the same time, I suppose that we want to be able to prove that the welfare is better. We're also being told that everything needs to be cheaper and with less emissions and less, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so it is quite challenging, but but it's good to see. And, and if anybody is in the right position to be able to do stuff around welfare and, and without sounding a bit over the top, I mean, vets, I suppose we're, we're almost the sort of custodians of welfare to an extent anyway, aren't we? And the word welfare is almost, for better or worse, sort of got a funny connotation to it. So it's nice to almost reclaim it and, and actually see that it's actually something that is important.
1: I agree. Because I mean, if you look at the code of conduct, the whole effectively custodian of welfare, that's in there as our role as a vet. And you're absolutely right. I think when you're looking at welfare you it can get caught up in a very emotional state it can be you know how people are feeling about it but if you bring it back to its roots and think about it as a science an animal welfare science on on what these animals are experiencing and feeling then the vet is absolutely at the forefront and i think that there's a real opportunity here for the veterinary profession to get more involved with welfare and it's clouded it's clouded because You have clients and you know the clients and certain welfare topics can be contentious, but the movement is going. It's like a freight train and we've got to be at the front of it. We really need to be in this space as veterinarians.
0: Yeah. And actually I think one of the negative connotations perhaps is that we sometimes think of welfare as being the sort of bottom of the cliff type stuff. The you know, I've got to report somebody because their cows are too skinny or there's too many lame cows or that type of thing. And actually sort of an almost rebranding of, of welfare as well-being, isn't there, that that uh, Fonterra have done, which is actually quite a, good, quite a good approach too, I think.
1: Absolutely. It's like everything that we've been saying for years about trying to move the vet away from the bottom of the cliff. It's exactly the same in this topic. There's so much more that can be done without worrying about the, you know, as opposed to thinking about the emaciated cow, the terribly lame cow, that stuff is still there for sure. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen before that. We can make a real difference to the lives of the animals and I guess to the farmer as well.
0: Yeah, happier cows should be producing better. I guess it's always been one of the challenges with welfare or research around welfare is um, being able to draw that straight line between the fact that the cows are content and happy and that they're actually producing better. It's not always easy to do. And I guess we don't necessarily have to, but if you go back five or 10 years probably wouldn't have been doing the type of research that you're doing but if you if you were doing something around pain for example or suffering of some sort the research was all about if I relieve this suffering will I make more money out of it you know will I actually will the cow produce more so so yeah a little bit of a change there so
1: oh that's right you can see that with you know even stuff with despotting. it was all about the pain of dispudding but they grew more You know, and that became the focus, whereas I think now, you know, that sort of is, no, no, they felt less pain during the study. So it definitely is a shift away from the focus of the research.
0: So that sort of segues quite nicely into talking about some of the work that you've been doing. You are Mrs. Calf Research New Zealand, I (laughs) think, Emma. (laughs) your, Your name is on most of the Calf Research stuff around, so... And I know you've got some new stuff that you're quite keen to sort of share. So do you want yeah. to sort so, fill yep. us in a little so so
1: bit? from on the calf perspective, yeah, we've got some some new stuff. Some, some people might have heard bits and bobs of it before, but it's just been published and we're super excited about it. And so the previous, I guess the background to it was that a lot of people have, have heard the research around failure of passive transfer in calves, mm. right? So we went out there, you know, a third of calves had failure of passive transfer on New Zealand farms there was this massive range between the farms, right? So we had some farms at 5% failure of passive transfer, some farms at 80%. So we're like, why Why is there this variability? What's going on? So we tried to find out. We asked lots of questions about what they're doing with their management and things like that. And we found not a lot, to be fair. Mm-hmm. You know, we found large herds above 600 cows were more likely to have calves with failure of passive transfer. And we had... Herds that were in Otago and Southland were more likely, to have it. and that's that's all we poor Otago and Southland. That's all we that's all we found out. And and when you think about it, you're like, well, that actually sort of makes sense because we've got seventy percent of farmers that leave the calves on the dam for up to twenty four hours because they have once a day pickup. So actually, probably the biggest effect on failure passive transfer is happening out in the calving paddock we certainly will have some influence but a lot of it is happening out there and so knowing that we thought all right well maybe we need to revisit what's happening with how well dams are feeding their calves because like back when I first started as a vet I remember going to a presentation I can't remember who it was by and it was all about how dams don't feed their calves. No they don't feed their calves but you've got farmers being like no they do I can see them feeding and And so then you go back and you look at the research and you're like, oh, okay, that study was actually done on like 26 calves, you know, and Uh, on one farm. And that stuff just goes viral throughout the industry and nobody stops and thinks, where did that come from? So. We thought we need to revisit this, so we spent a couple of years. So eight farms in total: four farms in year one, four farms in year two, and we had farms in the Waikato and Canterbury. And we set up so we could watch to see if they fed from their dams. So we had sizzle lifts, people watching twenty-four hours a day in these in these paddocks. Logistically, incredibly challenging study. I mean, the technicians that did it. I mean, God, that's just amazing. So I'll jump to the conclusions of it though, and. So what we found was that about 60, what have I got here, 64% of calves fed from their dams. Now that ranged anywhere from 40% to 90%. So actually seeing them suckling from the udder. And so what we found is that, hang on, so some farms feed beautifully, you know, like got 90% of calves feeding from the dams. And then some farms, it was really crap. They didn't feed well at all. And we sort of looked at, well, why is that? You know, why why are some farms feeding so well? What's You know, controlling what they're feeding, you know, in terms of what's influencing the calf feeding. And so there are a couple of things that were found. So the sooner they stood, the more likely they were to feed. So basically, if they got up and stood quickly, they're more likely to feed. That sort of makes sense, right? You know, because if you have a calf with a lot of vigour, they stand up and feed it's a lot more successful than one that sits around lies around for six hours they they tended to to struggle so if they if they stand up quickly it's good calves that were born from older dams so that's dams sort of above seven years of age they didn't suckle as well as calves that were fed from younger dams that could be anatomy you know some of those big droopy udders It genuinely is really hard for them to get to. And there's research on that as well in terms of the actual height of the udder being, you know, location of the udder is really important for them to, to feed. And if it's too low, they don't have that reflex. So that makes lots of sense. And then we also had how frequently the farmer collected the calves. So if you're on a farm where they were collecting once a day versus farms where they were collecting more often than that. They were better at feeding on the once-a-day collection farms. And we've pondered about this a lot. (laughs) You know, why is that? I don't know if it's breeding. I don't know if it's because that's what's always happened on these farms, so the calves are used to it.
0: Just clarify that. So who was better at feeding, the calves or the, the farmers were better at
1: feeding? No, no. So the calves were better at feeding from the dams. If right. they were on a farm where the farmer only collected them once a day, right? So I know this sounds so funny. This is so backwards to what we've learned for ages. I mean, maybe that's because they don't like to be disturbed. Maybe it's the type of farm. We've probably got too few farms to really know. So that was one of the other things. And then one of the final things was if it's cold, so if it's below 10 degrees, they don't suckle as well.
0: Right, so there's your Otago and Southland link. That's link, right. yep. and, I mean, a lot
1: of, exactly. And it's so nice to confirm that. And a lot of farmers thought that that was the reason. But yeah, if it's cold, probably crappy weather, they, they don't feed as well. So I think, you know, as a conclusion on, oh, Jesus, what do you do with that information? The information that it's not a simple, one for all conclusion for farms, right? So previously as vets, we've said, you've got to collect them twice a day or more and feed them colostrum in the shed. And what we're seeing now is that mm, on some farms, especially the farms that were getting 90% of calves feeding, that would have been detrimental to the herd. You know, so that if, if the farmer went and collected them more often, that would have been worse off for the calves. We had other farms where it was the opposite, where they weren't feeding well at all. And so if the farmer wasn't collecting them more frequently, then that would have not been good either. So the, the conclusion of all of this is that as a vet, we cannot give a blanket recommendation. We have to try and get an idea on if they are feeding. And if they're feeding, leave them alone. If they're yeah. not feeding, well, you're going to have to change your system and collect them more. often. So that that was one of the things that, that we asked. And, and as a vet, you know, we can investigate this better by actually seeing if we can sample them before they get fed in the shed. And that, depending on the time frame, it's, it's getting a little bit detailed for the podcast probably, you'd want to have a bit of time between when the calf feed and, and when you test it. But that gives you a bit of an indication if they have fed effectively. And if they haven't, it, you know, it gives you a bit of an idea on, okay, are a lot of them feeding or are they not? And that helps you give advice to the farmers around what they need to be doing.
0: Right, so you're talking about maybe early in the season testing some calves very early on and actually getting an assessment like at that stage, do we make the advice once a day pick up or twice a day pick up this year on this farm type thing?
1: That's right. So then adding to that, what we also did on that study was we blood tested them before they got any colostrum from the farmer Mm. and then we blood tested them after. And then we sort of saw what was going on you know, in terms of was it successful when the farmer was doing it? Did it matter? Did it matter what the bricks was? You know, all that that sort of stuff. And what we found, which is not super surprising, but basically, if they feed from the dam, they were way less likely to have failure passive transfer across the board. So if they feed, it's the bomb. It's generally speaking, awesome. Probably not for all farms, but generally speaking, it's pretty awesome. And the reason for that is because if they don't feed, you are totally at the whim of the farmer as to what the farmer is feeding, right? So if you have only 40% of them feed, then 60% of those calves, it's totally dependent on what's going down their throat. What we found in the end was that when measuring total protein, which is of course our indicator of you know, passive transfer, that the calves that suckled from the dam and were given very good colostrum by the farmer, they had the highest total proteins out of everyone, which makes sense, right? Because if they didn't suckle from the dam, they got mint as colostrum from the farmer, and so they were awesome. But the interesting thing was, is that if they suckled from the dam only, and then got crap colostrum, that was actually better than being brought into the shed and being given good colostrum. Crazy, right? So the point of that is that suckling from the dam, if they suckle, it's the bomb. It's awesome. The risk of that is that the total proteins in general were higher, but they were more variable. So if they suckle, it's it's wicked, but you've got a bit more of a risk if they don't suckle. Whereas if you collect them really frequently and and put in colostrum, it was less in terms of the total protein average value, but it was less variable because you don't have some of those stray ones that that didn't suckle and and things like that.
0: So, yeah, that's that is quite tricky, isn't it? So the it's almost saying we we need to the farmers. Need to be giving as good an assessment as they can of of the the old sort of belly fill of the calf, their own assessment of whether it's suckled or not as well, isn't
1: it? Yeah, they always need to have good colostrum. I think you know, even if they're feeding, they really need to have good yes. colostrum. But but yeah, I think it just goes to show just how good feeding from the dam is. And when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because when they're feeding from the dam, they're often feeding maybe an hour to one and a half hours after calving so you've got that really quick feed you know as opposed to if you're collecting them and they haven't fed or if they've had to wait or you know so you've got the the colostrum coming out of the dam very soon after calving so it's very likely to be high quality and it's going into them really soon so so it makes sense I think the point of all of this was is to try and get all the vets to think about this a little bit differently, to think about it that it's different on every farm. It's not necessarily a bad thing if the farmer leaves mm-hmm. them with the dam, but we need yeah. to look at it on a case-by-case basis. So that was an example anyway, a very short version anyway, of research that we've done that is trying to look at you know the consumer's care about whether these things are left on the dam. You've got overseas research now looking at can we have calf to cow contact, you know, during their rearing? Can we bring the calf in and have two hours a day with its mum and then have it go back to the sheep? You know, all of this stuff is going on. And so this is, it's a movement and we're quite well set up because they already are with the dam for a lot longer than everywhere else in the world. So it's just working with that to use it to our advantage and advising accordingly.
0: Yeah and it it might have even more implications further down the track too. I mean probably most people are aware that the clock is ticking probably on bobby calves. It's probably going to mean some management changes of some sort isn't it? So and maybe more time on the dam, all kinds of things that we're going to have to start thinking about and so this type of research and understanding what's going to happen if we leave them on the dam for longer and maybe it's going to be different as you say by farm. So yeah all kinds of and that, that really is a big welfare sort of can of worms to open up and area of research that uh, I, I gather there's a bit of stuff going on
1: there too. That's right. I, I think the, yeah, the the future of the current bobby calf scene is limited. Um, <laughs> so, you know, nobody knows where that's going to go, but, you know, the odds of them being reared for longer are probably quite high. To be able to do that, how on earth do you have the infrastructure? There's no sheds. You know, you mm. have to build a whole other shed. So. I think that actually looking at it this way is going to be pretty important and looking at the welfare of bobby calves, making sure. And if if you can cover that off really nicely by having them with the dam, maybe that is, it's a bit wacky to think about, I know, but maybe that is a potential future.
0: Yeah, I think it's probably just about a podcast in its own right to talk about bobby calves. So we won't go too deep on that. But um, yeah, I think, you know, change is coming and it might be sooner than you think, I suppose, is maybe the message there. So.
1: That's right. Absolutely.
0: So the other one that you that you spoke to me about, I guess, well, last week was stuff around tail damage. So that sounds pretty interesting too. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about yeah.
1: that? Yeah. And I'm so, so happy to be able to talk about it, to be honest. Like this sort of thing so I guess the background to it is that tail damage all over the world is an issue. It's often been considered to be an issue in housed cattle, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the infrastructure that's around it. But the well farm data, you know, from the team of Mark Bryan and so on, has suggested, well, no, this is this is an issue in New Zealand as well. So what we we're trying to figure out was like, all right, we, we need to figure out how big of an issue this is in New Zealand and actually be able to benchmark where things are because you know, there are welfare cases going on with it. If we ever get into welfare auditing or if we get into you know, like the well farm stuff where they look at tails and they look at body condition score, this is where this is where the veterinary world is going. And so we need to have a benchmark. And that's essentially what we went out to do. So um VedEnt and Vet South joined together to put a bid into MPI and managed to get funding to look at tail damage in New Zealand dairy cows, which is so so cool. And so This is so hot off the press, like we haven't talked about this yet because it is just that new. We literally submitted a report for it like a couple of weeks ago. What we did is we had 200 farms across nine regions of New Zealand looking at tail damage and they were randomly selected from veterinary practices client list. So in total there were 92,348 dairy cows scored. And the scoring system was based on the NZBA scoring system where they were looking at deviations in the tail, any sort of trauma, and then the final thing was shortening, you know, so if there was any sort of docking that was still there. And then what we did is we had a bunch of survey data, as we always do, to try and be like, well, why, you know, what are the risk factors for this? Is it, is it the fact that we've got a whole bunch of young, inexperienced staff that's causing it? Is it because they do winter housing? Is it, you know, all these sorts of things to try and put our finger on what's affecting it. And we also looked at how many we need to score, you know, so can we just rock on up and score 30 or do we need to score a whole herd? So those were the sort of the main things that we've been looking at initially. So the results were that if we just looked at deviations and trauma, You know, so if we just ignore shortening for now, then that was 11 percent of cattle had a deviation or trauma. Now, most farmers had no idea, you know, so it's not like, you know, a lot of people think of tail damage as being a malicious thing. You know, like are people going along and purposefully doing this. It's hard to know, and I'm sure that is the case in in some places, but a lot of the farmers we were talking to were just, like, gobsmacked, right? It's, it's, like, one of those things where, like, unless you're looking for it, you sort of don't notice it. And then unless you're feeling for it, you won't necessarily notice it. And so it was one of those things no. that's not necessarily apparent to the eye. If you remember, like, pregnancy testing, like, I never noticed tails. But as soon as you start looking at tail damage, that's all you notice, when you start doing that sort of job, so it's just one of those things that's brought to your attention. So eleven percent. Now the range was anywhere from one percent to forty percent on farm. So and I suspect in some respects that that was a little lower than we probably could have get because the farmers still had to agree for us to go on farm. So I okay. suspect that if there were some really high ones that we may not have seen them. But nonetheless, that's what we found. And so what it does show is that no dairy farm had 0% damage. So it doesn't seem possible to be able to do that. And some dairy farms were particularly bad. Now, we looked at it depending on the region, because there were nine different regions. And it did definitely vary per region. So we had 13 and 14% in Southland and Waikato. And then we had like on the west coast of the South Island, there was only 7% and Northland there was 10%. So whether that's true or not, it's hard to know because you've got different people scoring. And so I think there's probably a little bit of that involved. So it's real. I, I don't think I'd come out of this being like, oh my God, why and Southland? You are <laughs> terrible. It's not necessarily that. But yeah, there definitely was a difference. Some of the risk factors that came out of it was that it's not as exciting as it seems. This always happens with risk factors. You have all this stuff that you think's going to make a difference, and then you plug it into these statistical models and you know you just get a few things out. it's always it's sometimes a little bit of a letdown. but general so basically, if they're milked twice a day all year, they were more likely to have tail damage. right So being in the shed is a risk factor. There's no two ways about it now, whether that's humans or whether that is infrastructure. I don't know, but it certainly is a risk factor. So once a day (laughs) herds, probably Mm -hmm. probably useful. One of the interesting things that came out, probably the only other really interesting thing in terms of the mixed model that we did was if we asked farmers, you know, how do you get a different a difficult cow to move? And they had various answers, you know, like using a polythene pipe or you know, using the rugby scrum getting behind it. We've all been there. We've all rubbed, you know got behind and done a rugby scrum. You know, have you lifted the tail? Have you done bits and bobs? And what we found was the farmers that said that they coax the cows somewhere. Now I'm presuming that this means, come on, come through, you know, that sort of thing. Like as opposed to really forcing them, they were less likely to have cows with tail damage. Now whether that's a temperament thing you know for the for the people that are willing to treat cows that way because I mean it's pretty frustrating you know when they won't when they won't go somewhere but I guess I don't know maybe if you've got a temperament that can deal with a difficult cow like that then then maybe that speaks volumes to how they are in the shed Um, yeah yeah (laughs)
0: coaxing cows is not Yeah, (laughs) it's a bit challenging in itself, probably. (laughs) But I'm just thinking, I mean, the number of times that I would have Without even thinking about it, just grabbed a tail to bring, you know, try and put a cow into a head bale. You know, the, the times that we tail jack heifers to, to do teat sealing, you know, all of that stuff that we're actually doing. I mean, are, are we part of the problem? I mean,
1: <laughs> I suppose it, it, we was, are. It, it's certainly a suspicion. So um, there were a number of things that came out on the univariable analysis, you know, like when you're just looking at the, the variable on its own without putting it into a mixed model and you know the use of external technicians so it wasn't actually the vets that doesn't mean that vets should get on their high horses and think yeah this is all the external people but that was a, a univariable came up you know as a potential relationship so for sure handling being in the shed is a risk factor but it's hard to know much more than that so those were the risk factors and then what we did was we looked at okay well if we're going to implement this, you know, imagine imagine vets going out and scoring cows. Do you have to be there for the whole herd? Can you just go to the start or the end? And the results found that it really depends on how accurate you want to be, which is such a stats answer to something. But like if you mm. want to be within like a 5% precision, right? So if you wanted to say that this was 10% plus or minus 5%, then you've got to at least score 165 animals. If you Mm -hmm. want to be within 3%, you need to score about 350 animals or so. So it's probably quite important. So if you're in the North Island, pretty much you should probably score the whole herd. If you're in the South Island with some of those whopping big herds, you probably don't need to score the whole thing to get a bit of an idea. But it becomes a little more complicated because... We looked at, and this was by we, I mean the royal we here. So this was actually one of Vet South's wonderful epidemiologists did all this work, where he looked at, can you score just at the beginning, you know, or can you score just at the end? And you can't really... <laughs> So you know, it it did make a difference to the results if it was at the beginning or the end, as opposed to all the way through.
0: I'd imagine that there's a difference between dominant and submissive cows, and how much they've been coaxed versus <laughs> versus pushed back think, yeah. at times. So
1: that's right. all cow flow, you know, like do the ones at the start, they probably flow through fine, so nobody thinks they're a problem. At the end, they're always the the ones that take forever, so maybe they're handled more. So I think the cool thing now is that we know what is the average in New Zealand. We know at least if your herd is above or below that. And now what we're trying to do, and this is probably the most positive thing, is that finding out this is one thing. But now what do we do as a profession? So one of the questions we had was, hey, you know, if we're measuring it, is that enough? You know, if we're measuring it and telling the farmer, maybe that's enough to make them aware of it. Or do we really need to get stuck in with some intervention? You know, do we need to get out there and train the farmers on cow flow and tails and what tails are for and that they show pain and that, you know, all that sort of stuff and get the staff all together and come up with their own solutions on how to deal with this? So what the next step is and that, that's happening at the moment is having different groups of farmers. So one's where they're just getting monitored every year and the farmers are being told the results. And the other group is when they're really getting stuck in having a farm training. And then our control group will be farmers that are getting monitored, but it will be essentially as part of a, a bunch of other things. So it's there's not a big focus on tails. So they you know they, they may not necessarily realize that tails are a focus of of the study and and that's what's happening next for the next couple of years is okay as a profession how are we going to make a difference
0: Hmm. so that's really cool I mean it's a really good example of the sort of stuff we're talking about I mean you know you you can't put a dollar value to to why having less damaged tails would be better for a farmer but yeah, it's a measure of, OK, maybe there's something, it's probably a bit of a, well, maybe a bit of a sort of canary in the well, I suppose. So maybe it's a, a sign that there might be some other stuff. I don't know whether you looked at that, whether there's association with, with other other types of issues on those farms. We we we
1: haven't, but it is, is a really good point. Yeah. yeah. But I think yeah. it's like, I think like the farmers, you know, a lot of them, when they're asked, what do you think is acceptable? On your farm, you know, most of them are saying nothing, we should have no yeah. tail breaks you know, or one to 2% maximum. So, farmers are really on board with not having any tail breaks, but they just haven't realized how much they've had. Right. So, in terms right. of the vets coming in and, and opportunities here, the opportunities are just to notice it mm. um, and to start the conversations and start talking about it. And if you can, monitor it because it's just going to make such a big difference
0: we're probably a bit guilty of it ourselves. I know I certainly was when I was in practice. I mean, you know, tail jacking was just a routine thing. I mean, I, I having heard this now, I, I think maybe there'd be a few vets listening going, crikey, I better set an example. You know, not mm. not actually sort of next time I'm trying to get a cow in somewhere, perhaps perhaps jacking her tail up is, is not really the way to go about it. But yeah, um, you know, certainly my experience is like exactly as you said, that the farmers probably – absolutely horrified to hear that, that most of them don't want to have anything like that, you know, would have a lot of pride in their animals. And so so just bringing it to their attention and setting an example ourselves is probably a good start anyway.
1: Absolutely. That's right. And, and calling it out, you know, mm. if you see something and having the confidence to do that. Again, when we were asking farmers, like, what would you do if you saw one of your staff members doing something inappropriate to a tail? All of them, usually gave a number of colorful words on what they you know they do so they you know it's very much seen as unacceptable but it's just that it's not noticed so um mm. it's a, it's a good position to be in
0: yeah that's that's been quite cool There's some there's some really different stuff in there some things that like we said earlier that uh, i don't think either of those studies probably would have happened 10 years ago maybe five years ago so it's just the fact that we're doing them and finding this stuff out next thing is what the heck do we do with some of this information as you say but but at least we've got something to sort of start thinking about really fascinating i look forward to hearing more of these types of things and seeing more of them
1: got plenty more ideas (laughs) (laughs) the trip is finding the funding for them but um there's there's a lot of stuff that can be done out there that's for sure
0: yeah, yeah. And I mean the fact you've got funding for these is um says something in itself. So so right. I'm sure those those opportunities will keep coming up. So but um yeah, thank you so much, Emma. That's been that's been really cool. And yeah, we'd better let you get back to your, your busy life, I suppose.
1: <laughs> so good. it's just it's lovely having the opportunity to, to speak about this stuff and to get it out there. It's so important. There's no point doing research if we can't get it out to the industry that it's yeah. designed for. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. For listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary, This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to
1: nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.